Good to see you all here tonight. If you're online joining us, it's good to see you as well. Uh, so real quick, we're going to get started here in about five minutes with discussion, uh, if you will. Find someone around you, talk about some parables, uh, maybe some insights that you had this week, something you enjoyed reading, and we'll get back to you here in just a few minutes. So glad that you're here. See you in a bit. Okay, let's go ahead and begin tonight. Um, just think we are... We are inching our way closer to the finish line. It has been awesome so far. Um, excited to address uh, questions about the parables tonight, and then we'll dive into our next lesson. Um, as we begin this evening, uh, just thinking through some of the questions you all had about the parables, uh, one of the, the recurring themes, one of the, the recurring questions dealt with the agrarian principles and details in the parables. And so one of the questions, if I could summarize, many of them said, um, Many of the parables rely on agrarian details that are foreign to many of us. Are there any hints or tips that would help us understand those parables more clearly in our modern context? So lots of agrarian details. How do we understand that in a modern context? What would you say? Yeah, I think the important thing to remember when we talk about parables is that most of the time, a parable just has one specific meaning. So like with the parable of the, the sower and the four soils, you can get really specific and think, okay, well, this soil represents this and this represents this, and Jesus talks about that. But in general, if you kind of zoom back, you say, well, what is this really talking about? What it's talking about is that there are different responses that everyone has to the gospel. And with the, the treasure in a field, um, you know, like we don't go out and find treasures in a field too often, but I remember a story of someone who went to a garage sale and uh, bought a, a portrait and because uh, they thought the frame was pretty. And they, they went home and they, they went to take the, the, the frame off and the frame fell apart and behind it was an original copy of the Declaration of Independence that, that sold for $2 million. And um, you, know, you think about things like that, you think, okay, imagine- Was it Nicolas Cage? No, it was not Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, if you imagine, like, imagine going to a garage sale and, and seeing something and you like, I don't have enough money for this, but this is worth way more. So I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, go to the pawn shop and pawn off my watch to raise money to buy this. That, that's the parable because it's that the, the kingdom of God is worth infinitely more than anything else. And so with, with a lot of, of parts of the Bible, we wanna be careful translating it too much into modern times. Sometimes I think with parables, you, you distill the point. What was Jesus' main point? The kingdom of God is valuable. And then can we retell that? That was one of the questions that we had on there is, how can you retell these parables in a modern context? Um, because sometimes we get too caught up in the details. Um, I remember reading something about uh, um, Augustine, the, the great early church uh, theologian, who wrote this huge thing about all of the different aspects of the Good Samaritan, and this represents this, and this is this, and, and as brilliant a theologian as, as he was and an, and an interpreter, I think he missed the point. Because it's, what is the main point of the parable, and how can we retell that main point so it's captured to a modern audience? So kind of a follow-up to that, one of the other questions was, how do we keep from reading too deeply into a parable? You kind of touched on this, but what would be some more tips and hints? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that most of us make reading parables is we don't even know, we may not even know the word, but we allegorize 
And allegorizing basically means where you take something, you say each element of the, the parable has to represent something that is different than it, than it really is. So, um, you, know, so you, you hear things like, okay, well, the good Samaritan is, is man and the, the inn is the, the innkeeper is the Holy Spirit who preserves and keeps and the, the good Samaritan is uh, Jesus who healed him and then will one day return to him. And it, I mean, it's like you build great theology out of it. I'm just making this up and it sounds good. Um, <laughs> But the problem is that's not the point. And, and so what we do is we need to stop and say, okay, what's the point? And most parables only have one intended meaning. And the response of the people, the audience, uh, helps us to understand what that point is. Most of the parables were intended to critique the religious elite in, in Jewish circles that they thought they were the ones on the inside and they were on uh, the outside. And if there is a parable that has multiple um, meanings, Jesus explains them. So like the, the four soils, he says, this represents this, and this represents this, and, and this represents this. For, for my thinking, when it comes to interpreting parables, if the, in, if the interpretation of the parable is given, so if Jesus says, this is what this parable means, then that's what we go with. Anything beyond that, I think we're, we're moving too far afield. If Jesus doesn't give an interpretation for that specific parable, we really should only be looking at, generally speaking, what is this talking about? And a lot of those are the parables of the kingdom, particularly in Matthew 13. And it's things like, it's valuable. Um, it's, it's surprising who is who in, in the kingdom. You know, the parable of the wheat and the tares. We won't know who the good seed and the bad seed is until the end. And really, it's not always so much our business to try to figure it out. It's just at the end, then everything will be known. The, the, the kingdom starts small and grows. Anything beyond that, we, we dig too much in. Um, I remember hearing someone one time say that the, uh, the leaven, um, the, the, the yeast in the, the parable, because there, there are two, the parable of the, the mustard seed and the yeast. He tells the same thing twice. And I heard someone once say, well, in other passages, yeast is almost always has a negative connotation. So we have to infer that this yeast is a negative connotation. So this is like the false kingdom growing at the same time. The problem I have with that is there's nothing in the text itself to indicate that. And just because yeast is typically referred to in a negative sense doesn't mean it has to be all the time. And I think those are things where we have to be really careful over reading and over analyzing uh, the meaning of a parable. That's good. Um, final question that came up was, what does Jesus mean when he says, those who have ears, let them hear? Sounds kind of cryptic. What, what do we think is going on? Yeah, actually, my, my wife and I went on a walk today and we were talking about this during, during the time because it's difficult for us to understand why do some people respond and others not? And I think, and, and this is me, you, you might actually disagree with me on this and that's, that's okay. <laughs> but I think so often we ask the question from God's perspective and we get into the whole sovereignty, election, free will. And, and I think in, in some ways that's kind of a rabbit trail. And when, when we look at it, we, let's not... I, we don't, I don't know. I don't know God's perspective on, on this. I know my perspective, which is I'm human and I hear Jesus saying this. And I think for me, it's how am I going to respond? And 
God may determine how people respond, or he may not, or, or what, what have you in, in that with regard to from God's perspective. But I know from my perspective, I have a responsibility to either hear and respond or to hear and reject. And what you see time and again in Jesus' parables is there were, there were really, there were three groups of people. There were the people who heard and didn't understand. There were the people who heard and understood and loved it. And incidentally, those were tax collectors and prostitutes and all kinds of people you just would not assume would be the ones who got it. And then you have those who heard and understood and rejected. And those were the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And, and it, it, what's fascinating to me when you read the parables is how divisive um, and unmasking they are. Where before, if, if we were in an audience and we were listening to, to you know, Jesus came to speak and, and we, we were picking the people who must surely understand what Jesus is talking about. We would, oh, it's the, 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 the scribes, the teachers of the law, they, they totally understand what Jesus is talking about. And then there's this riffraff group over here who, why are they even here? And like, like we read in Mark and like, like Luke's gospel, I, um, for, for the Acts reading for, for next week, I was, I was pre-reading Luke today. And it's amazing to me at the, 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 the reversal in the kingdom. And the parables play a major part in that, that concept of a reversal because you have the people who thought they got it didn't. The people who wanted to get it but didn't think they were worthy got it. And, it, and it's so, such a beautiful thing, but it's also very condemning because by their own admission, by their response to the parables, they were lining themselves up in these groups. And the, there, I remember there was a, a parable, I think it was the parable of the, the, the tenants in the vineyard, and, and the Pharisees heard it, and it said that they knew that Jesus was talking about them. And so then they went out and conspired how to kill Jesus. It's like, you know, you could just repent. But then I think, how many times do I do the same thing? Like I, I justify my own behavior or, or things. And I think with, with the he who has ears to hear, let him hear, it also goes back to the parable at the very beginning, which is the, the four soils, that there are people who won't understand for, for whatever reason. You know, and, and this is kind of the, the whole sovereignty, free will debate. Does God harden their hearts? Do they harden their hearts? Is it a combination of both? I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I just know they have a hard heart for whatever reason. Then there are those second and third soils where they, they, they get it, they receive it, but then either because of persecution, it's hard, they, they fall away, or the third soil, which I think in some ways the, the third soil is so much the, the American Christian um, because what we do is we, we want to follow Jesus, we want to serve Jesus, but then there's the, the trappings of this world. There's the, the deceitfulness of riches. There's, um, it, it chokes out the, the fruitfulness. And the, the he who has ears to hear, um, Eugene Peterson in the message translates it, are you getting this? Are you really getting it? And, and in, in Matthew 13, if you notice the, the disciples, they go, yeah, we get it. No, they didn't. It's so ironic. They're like, yeah, yeah, I get this. No, they don't. And no, we don't. Because how much is the, is the kingdom of God worth? 
the, the treasure in a field. We would all, I mean, if you're sitting here on a Monday night, you believe that the kingdom of God is valuable. And I, sitting up here on a Monday night, I think the kingdom of God is valuable. And then I think back at some of the actions and the behaviors that I had over the past week. How, how valuable do I really find? The do I have ears to hear? And, and so I think there's, there's a lot of, of there, there's a growth that happens too. And, and sometimes I think the more we understand the nature of the kingdom of God, the more we actually realize we don't get it. I find that, that now over the past 15 years of, of, of spiritual growth, I find myself mourning more now the fact that I don't get the nature of the kingdom of God than I did 10 or 15 years ago. I get it much more now, but I also realize I, I don't get it. And I think there, there's, there's some of that tension in that as well. So, I think even to your point, I think one, one of the scary things for me when I read the parables is this thought of pride of just to your point, like I think I can, there are times where I intellectually understand but, you know, just like the disciples, but that doesn't mean I actually understand in my heart. Right. And you can hear, you can grow up in church, and you can hear the same things over and over and over again. You understand intellectually, but that doesn't mean you're applying in a deep, new, fresh way every single day. And I think that's where then we have those moments of realization, like, oh, my goodness, I have just been acting like this is just a normal, everyday thing, when it's really right. not. Right. So to your point, yeah. I, I think pride is a huge factor. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I hate to admit it, but the... We all, we, we, you know, going back to what we discussed earlier in the year on, 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 on narrative, we talked about when we, when we read ourselves into the story, we tend to read ourselves in as the heroes. I find more and more as I read the, the gospels, I'm the Pharisees. I'm, I am the prodigal son's older brother because I think, oh, I've got it all together. I've got, I figured it. And, and the true nature of the kingdom of God shatters all of my nice little packages of, you know, I've got this all figured out. I, 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 I've got it all together. And then I read the gospel of Mark and it just breaks me because I realize I, I don't, I don't get it. Well, and, and even, even some, and you can relate to this of you read through enough biblical scholarship and sometimes you, you're reading people that know way more about the Bible than any of us combined in this room. And yet, they're, it's clear they're not Christians. And yeah. that is a scary, scary, scary thought. Yes, yes so. it is. Um, with, with that kind of summary, what would be some helpful hints into the guiding questions as we kind of transition? What would be some summaries of some of the questions we asked? Um, I, have to to look at the, I have to remember what the questions <laughs> are. <laughs> so a couple of them we've already kind of hit on. Um, you know, with, with the, the important thing, I think, to understand with the audience hearing the parables is it was kind of this everyman group. I mean, you know, and, and the, the responses were good. They're like, well, there were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were the rich and the poor. I mean, it's, you know, when you read through the, the stories of, of Jesus performing miracles and there are Pharisees in the synagogue and there's a demon-possessed guy screaming. And I'm like, could you imagine, like, what if that happened to church? Like there's just someone in the background just yelling and screaming. That's like, 
It's just bizarre. But these crowds that followed Jesus were so varied. There were, I mean, all manner of people. There were men and women and children and rich and poor and um, slaves and free people and uh, scholars and people who wouldn't know scholarship if, you know, it hit them in the head. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really not that different in some ways than, than now. And, and so because of that, with the nature of the parables, Jesus tells these stories and Anyone could get them. I mean, this is, it's, it's like, you know, look, you look off and you see a farmer sowing seed. You, you, we, we see these pictures. And as Missourians, we still kind of have that so much. You know, if, if I were teaching this in, in Washington, D.C. or New York City or something, then that would be a little bit harder because some of those people have never seen a tree or, you know, or a field, let alone a farmer sowing seed. And, and so, but by getting down to, you know, what is the main point? And we've kind of talked about those in, in each one of these, that there's, there's a varied response to the gospel. I think that's encouraging because sometimes we feel like it's my responsibility to save everyone. It, it, it's not. It's the, they, they have a responsibility in how they hear. What is our responsibility? To sow the seed, to, to share the gospel. The other thing that's encouraging too is that just because someone is a hard-hearted person now doesn't mean they always will be. And you hear stories about people who come to faith in Christ and they, it, you know, they'll say, well, years ago I had a neighbor who I treated really badly um, and they treated me well in spite of it. And they were a Christian. And it's like, you know, you, you hear things like that. And, um, you know, the, 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 the central point is what you kind of focus on. Um, the, the response these parables would have on the original audience, we already kind of hit on that, that there's really a various response. Some people really were offended by them. Um, in fact, a lot of people were really offended by them. Um, could you imagine preaching a sermon and having people leave and discussing how they were going to kill you? <laughs> it's like, this is the response that, that people had um, to Jesus. And the, the connection, you know, at, at the end of this, these Matthew 13, there are these parables. And then Jesus goes to Nazareth and the people welcome him because he's the, the hometown boy done, done good. And, and then he, that they reject him. And if you go on reading in Matthew 14, there are other people and, the, and you see the people reject Jesus. And then there are some who accept him. And it's almost like the connection between these parables and then the stories that follow is they're living out these parables where you begin to see these are the soils. And the, the, the demon-possessed guy who lives in the cemetery has a better heart than the people in the town who once the demon-possessed man is healed beg Jesus to leave. You just keep seeing this, this inverse. Um, how might these parables be retold so the same meaning is conveyed to a modern audience? Um, I'll just give you one example of this. Um, with, with regard to the treasure in the field, I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, but a long time ago, I heard a story um, where uh, the question was put, imagine that in the near future, all of you, you found out that all of the world's uh, currencies and economies were going to collapse. And the dominant currency in the new economy was purple rocks. Just purple rocks. Not, you know, precious purple rocks, just purple rocks. What would you do? 
you would collect purple rocks. And then stop and think about this for a minute. So, so you drain your swimming pool and you start throwing purple rocks in it. And you, you sell your car and you buy a dump truck because then you can haul more purple rocks. What would your neighbors think of you? This, this person's crazy. And you keep collecting purple rocks. You build a silo in your backyard. You collect purple rocks and the neighbors start talking and you hear all this stuff. They think you have completely lost your mind until the purple rocks become valuable. And then you know what you are? You are a genius. You know, in, in venture capitalism, the only difference between a fool and a genius is if you're right. We have been told that all of the world's economies and currencies will collapse. And we have been told what the currency in the new kingdom will be. Giving a cup of cold water to the least of these. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Caring for the, the widow and the orphan and, and the oppressed and all of these things. And when we do these things, and when we divest ourselves of earthly currency to purchase purple rocks, we look crazy. But it's the treasure in the field. It's the, it's, it's the same parable, just retold. It's this is more valuable, and I am willing to be inconvenienced. I am willing to look stupid and foolish. I am willing to be made fun of, and I am willing to lose everything from my reputation to my house to my retirement to whatever, because I believe that God's kingdom is worth more than any of the earthly currencies. That's a modern retelling of the parable, and it's one that I think we, we can get because we think in terms of, of economy and investment, return on investment, and those sorts of things. Investing in the kingdom of God is the best return on investment that you can make. So I think that's kind of you know, one way. There are lots of ways that you can think this through, and it depends on your audience. And if you're talking to adults, you do that. I was teaching a junior high or high school a chapel one time, and I was talking about video games, the, the Fallout video game series, because in that, the dominant currency is bottle caps. So I took a bottle cap and said, how much is this worth? People are like, nothing. So if you play Fallout, how much, what can you buy with this? And they're like, oh, you know, they got all excited about it because they were, it, but it's, it's video games, and they, and they get it. But it's the same parable. And it's what's worthless or valuable depends on who's in power. And if God's in power, then what he says is valuable, is valuable. You know, our differing modern context uh, can skew our understanding of these parables. Um, we we kind of talked about this already because the, the truth is we can think we understand something when we don't. And our modern context, I think sometimes we define the kingdom of God, sometimes the way that the first century Jews did. We think of, well, investing in the kingdom of God is um, building a nice church building or is doing this or that. And, it's, and that can be, but not necessarily. And sometimes we, we confuse our kingdom with, with God's kingdom. And, and we have to really ask, what was Jesus saying to them first? And how does that flow with what does it mean for us today? So that's kind of some of the things that how, how I would have, you know, addressed those guiding questions. The, the parables are great because they, they just, they're, they're kind of like the Proverbs where you can, you can tell someone a parable who's an unbeliever and it doesn't offend them. 
And then they're like, hey, like, oh, that was in the Bible. And they're like, what? Really? But they, but they get it. And, and it, it's a bridge to, to an audience. And it, it also kind of um, cuts people a little bit. When you stop, you think, ooh, is the kingdom really that valuable to me? So th- those are just kind of some ways that maybe I would look at, look at the, the, the parables. That's good. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, um, and then we're going to transition to a time of teaching. Right. But uh, we can thank God for the parables. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for the parables in the word. God, thank you for the way they teach us and instruct us. Um, God, help us never to be so prideful that we would miss the point and the truth that is in front of us. God, help us be convicted by hard truths. God, help us not justify our own sin. But God, help us have soft hearts, moldable hearts. Um, God, where we can see our sin and we can repent and we can turn to you. God, that we wouldn't be the, the folks that would be hardened and would turn away like the Pharisees and others. Um, God, would you help us see that your kingdom is worth anything and everything we could possibly give? Um, God, in your word, you say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's not because all will come to a saving knowledge of Christ as much as we wish that were true, but God, it will be the case that there will be a day when every single one of us, every single person that has ever existed will soon understand that Jesus is exactly who he, is, who he said he was. And uh, God, help us have the encouragement to give everything we have for the sake of the gospel, share the gospel uh, with all of our friends, all of our neighbors, and be convicted by its truth so that we could live for your glory uh, and your fame. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I was looking through here. I can't believe we are two-thirds of the way finished, three-fourths of the way through. Um, it has been such a joy and a, a pleasure to get to be with you guys each week and to go through the different uh, genres of, of Scripture and talk about how to, to interpret. Um, thanks to Nick, because uh, Nick invites people every week. Um, so, so there have been new people joining us, us each week. So I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a recap and kind of follow um, up in, in general. So we talk about this each week, the general tips for reading Scripture. The, the big theme of the, the encounter class, um, really what, what it arose from was a, a realization that all too often we interpret Scripture as if it were written directly to us today. And so we'll, we'll read and, you know, if you've ever been in a, in a Bible study and someone says, well, to me, this means this. And someone else says, well, to me, this means this. And, and they disagree. And you, you stop and be like, well, it has to mean something. It, it, has to mean, there, there, it has to mean something more than just what I think it means versus what, what someone else thinks it means. And what, one of the things that we said early on is kind of a little bit of a, of a shock to us. But we need to understand that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was written to other people in a specific context, and a specific time, for a specific purpose. And in order to understand what this means for us today, what does this mean for God's people today, we first need to go back and ask ourselves, what did this mean to God's people back then? So really, what we've done, you know, if you're familiar with the observation, interpretation, application, or um, the inductive Bible study, or some of the other methods, what we're talking about is we need to interpret Scripture well before we can apply it. 
But some people get all excited about interpreting scripture. And this is kind of what, what Caleb alluded to, where you, you read commentaries or you can go to um, some, some secular schools that have phenomenal theology departments and incredibly brilliant scholars who interpret the Bible all over the place and never apply it. It, it never changes their lives. And how sad that is, because the Bible is not just some artifact for us to talk about and, and get smart from reading and think, oh, this is such a fascinating thing. So we don't stop with what did this mean to God's people back then? We also have to ask, what does it mean for us today? But if we don't do the difficult work of interpretation first, if we don't ask this question, then we're in danger of misapplying what it means for us today. So that's kind of in a nutshell for, for those of you who are, are new or really for those of you who have slept since we started, that's kind of what we're, we're doing. So then, you know, kind of to, to illustrate this with the parables, first we have to ask, what did Jesus' audience understand this to mean? Because we don't believe that something, it could mean something totally different for us today than it meant to them. And so then, but once we do that, we say, well, what does this mean for God's people today? The kingdom of God is no less valuable today than it was in Jesus' day. Um, I think I, I may have mentioned this last, last week uh, with, with regard to the Gospels. I, until more recently than I really care to admit, um, I always thought that the, the passages that talked about the cost of discipleship, the foxes have holes and um, birds have nests, the son of man has no place to lay his head. I always thought that in 21st century America, those things applied to missionaries and Christians who live in countries where people are antagonistic to their faith. But surely in 21st century Western America, in a, in a fairly Christian nation, a nation that at least has at least you know has some respect for for Christian values. Surely, surely following Jesus doesn't involve that kind of sacrifice today, does it? And what I've come to realize over the years is that yes, it may not look the same, but it involves the same type of commitment to I'm willing to look foolish for the kingdom of God. I'm willing to not look respectable to my coworkers or my peers because I believe that Jesus' kingdom is the true kingdom. And so what we do is we realize that what it means for God's people today is just as powerful and just as challenging as what it meant to God's people back then. So that's, that's kind of how, you know, when we look at this, the general tips for reading scripture Everything kind of goes back to these two basic questions, which those of you who've been here all the time are probably kind of tired of, of hearing this. But in, in the way to answer this question, the first question, what did this mean to God's people back then? Really what we're focusing on is determining the author's original intent to his original audience. So if we you know, rewind way back to the beginning to our narrative passage, which will actually tie in some of the, the narrative context again tonight when we talk about Acts. In our Old Testament narrative um, week, when we talked about Ruth, we realized that the book of Ruth is not about how to get a husband, or it's not about um, explicitly even really about Jesus per se. 
What the book of Ruth is about, the original author's intent was to explain the rise of the Davidic monarchy, the rise of David, and to show that the rise of David did not come as a result of the powerful and the, the, the mighty and the sophisticated um, like you saw in the book of Judges. It wasn't Samson, the strong man who brought about David's empire. The, the, it was not um, Gideon or Jephthah or any of those people who you would think, surely this is how the kingship would come to be. It was as a result of small town faithfulness, ordinary people, following God and doing ordinary things. So it's the author's original intent to his original audience. Then when we go to the goal of application is what, how do we live out the meaning of that text today within line with what it meant back then? And so this is where with application, it can vary to each, for each one of us because sometimes we I might be called to do something totally different than you might be called to do. How can I in my life show that the kingdom of God is more valuable than anything else? Well, that will look different to each one of us, but we all have the opportunity to apply that truth to our lives. Some of us may decide we're going to forego a, a promotion or a, a, an investment opportunity to take more time to go on mission trips. Other people might decide, I'm not going to uh, pursue this career because it could uh, harm my family. Or I, I, some of us might decide, I'm going to go on the mission field permanently. It's not a right or wrong thing always, but the, the right thing is we all need to demonstrate that God's kingdom is more valuable than our own. How that plays out varies from, from person to person. But we live out the meaning of the text today in line with what it meant to God's people back then. So this week, uh, your reading for this week is going to be the book of Acts. And so we're gonna get, talk about just some general tips for reading Acts. The reason I brought up the Ruth passage from earlier is because Acts, like Ruth and like much of scripture, is a narrative. It's a story. So all of our discussion previously on narrative also applies to the book of Acts. We need to understand that narratives don't always tell us whether something is right or wrong. They just tell a story. They don't always tell us who the heroes are or who they aren't. Sometimes we have to infer some of those things. Narratives are meant to be read like a story. For, for those of you who, like me, have been in, um, raised in church, sometimes it's hard to remember that you don't know the end of the story. And so we read Acts, and it's like, well, I know what's going to happen. So this Saul of Tarsus is on the scene, and he's wreaking havoc. And you're like, oh, that's no problem. Two chapters later, three chapters later, and he's Paul, and everything's grand. When Theophilus was first reading Acts, written by Luke, he may not have known that. Like, we should actually read the story with a little bit of tension, like, pretend you don't know what happens, because it's a much more exciting story. The narrative carries you along when you're reading it as a story, and Acts is super exciting. 
sometimes in churches, when we preach the book of Acts and we preach it in like 52 weeks or, or something like that, it robs it of the excitement because we read through it so slowly. It's like, just read it. It is incredible. It is an incredible story. We need to pay attention specifically with Acts. We need to understand the purpose of the book. Acts 1.8, this is a, if, if um, I was in Awana when I was little and this was a verse I had to memorize. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is not just a, like a key verse or something that, that we memorize. That actually maps out what is happening in the book of Acts. Because the movement of the gospel happens ethnically and geographically. At the beginning of the book of Acts, the church is almost 100% Jewish in Jerusalem. At the end of the book of Acts, the church is largely Gentile in Rome and going on. How did that happen? What happened? Probably one of the reasons why the book of Acts was written was to explain how a largely Jewish phenomenon at the beginning turned into a global and Gentile religion. That's, that's what's happening in the book of Acts. And so the spread happens from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the Gentile world. So that's really, as you read through Acts, that's really what's going on. And you have to pay attention to that. One of the things too, I'll mention it here and we'll mention it again. Um, because the acceptance of non-Jews into the early church was a much bigger deal to the original audience than it is to us. We do not often understand why Acts is doing what it's doing. Why is Luke telling these stories? Because to us, and I mentioned this last week, most of the church, the Christian church is by and large Gentile. And to us, that's no big deal. To the followers of Jesus, in the beginning of the book of Acts, that was almost impossible to fathom. A Gentile church was not something that, that they could understand. In fact, remember we talked about in, in, in the gospel of Mark reading last week or two weeks ago, the, the, the specific quotes of Isaiah in Mark are really geared toward understanding the rejection of the Jews, the, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, and that the, the Gentile church was something that had been prophesied years before. Isaiah foretold all of this. And the early church, that Mark understood this and wove these quotes from Isaiah into his gospel to help a largely Gentile audience, Mark was written mostly to Gentiles, understand that, that their acceptance into the church was something that God had planned long ago. In the book of Acts, if we don't understand that the Jews had to get this pounded into their head that Gentiles were accepted, we are going to miss 
understand one of the most important things that happens in the book of Acts, which is that there are actually three Pentecost events. There is in the book of Acts, there are three specific outpourings of the Holy Spirit. The first one is at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And you know who the audience was? Almost entirely Jewish. And if it, or they were Gentile converts to Judaism. They were all in Jerusalem for the feast. The second one happened in either Antioch. I can't remember. It's in the north, in, in the Galilean region to a group of Samaritans. And Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile, who were rejected by um, the Jews, but still had some common understanding and, and a common belief in, in the Torah, the, the law of Moses. And there was a, 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 a give, the, the Holy Spirit was given there. And the, the, the church in Jerusalem came up with like, what happened? How, they, and, and they said, can these people be saved? And basically what they said was, if God gave them the Holy Spirit, the same as he gave as, uh, to us, what right do we have to say that they can't be a part of the church? The third outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened at Cornelius' house. And Cornelius and his family were complete, 100% Gentiles. Three outpourings of the Holy Spirit. One, Jerusalem on the uh, Jews, on Samaritans, and on Gentiles. See, sometimes we, people will read this, especially some of our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters will read Acts and say, see, what this demonstrates is that in order, once you're saved, you have to have a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit because that's what's happening in Acts. But that's really not what Acts is saying. Acts is not saying that there has to be a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate your salvation. What Acts is doing is demonstrating that all ethnicities and all geographic locations can be a part of God's church and can be a part of the people of God. And it's demonstrated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in visible manifestations was probably more for Peter's benefit than it was for the recipient's benefit. Because remember, Peter also had to see the, the, uh, the sheet brought down with all the food on it. And God three times had to tell Peter, do not call unclean something that I have sanctified. And then Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he sees the Holy Spirit and he gets it. See, if we don't understand what it meant to God's people back then, then we are more likely to misunderstand what it means for us. Because it seems to me that Acts is not demonstrating a second baptism of the Spirit. What Acts is actually demonstrating is the universality of the giving of the Holy Spirit to people groups that in Acts chapter 1 and 2, the Jews did not believe had access. It was a largely Jewish church. So that's one way that we can, when we read the book of Acts, we need to understand what is Luke's purpose? What is he doing? Why is he saying this? And we have to keep this in mind because this was a big deal to the early church. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, a huge, significant, momentous event in church history when they basically said, how do Gentiles become a part of the church? Major implications. We need to understand 
that the acceptance of non-Jews into the early church was a much bigger deal to the original audience than it is to us. So as I've kind of highlighted, when it comes to interpreting and applying Acts, the difficulty lies in differentiating between knowing and doing. We've talked about this a little bit. We talked about it early on when it came to the narrative passages. But what we need to understand is, are the things being told to us in the book of Acts, are they things for us to primarily know, or are they things that we should do? And I'll give you an illustration of this. When I was um, first married, um, I was in a church, and um, our pastor left, and a, a, a guy who had been in the church came to, um, and he was he kind of volunteered to be the, the interim pastor. And so the week before, when, when, um, before he started, our church had a, um, a praise band, and there was a drum set and a keyboard and everything. The next week, there was a piano and nothing else on the stage. And, and this, this, this person, he, he said, we are not going to do the battle of the bands, pop music. We are going to do church the way they did church in the early church, basically, was what he was saying. If it's not in Acts, we're not going to, to do it. And so it, it caused a lot of conflict in the church because it was like, you know, whiplash, um, all of a sudden going from one style of worship and preaching to a totally different thing just like in one week. Well, this person was a retired banker, and I was newly married and really poor. And what I really badly wanted to do was to say, well, that's great, so are you going to be distributing and sharing your wealth? Because in the book of Acts, we had, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word of God, prayer, and everyone sold their possessions and gave to people as they had need. So cough it up. I didn't actually say that. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't because I would have felt really bad. But see, the problem is, the question is, what is a knowing and what is a doing? Or what is Acts saying was done, and what is it saying should always be done? And there are a lot of inconsistencies in this where we, we tend to think that Acts presents this ideal. This is the way church should always be. But in reality, that's not what Luke is doing. Luke is not saying this is the way the church should be. Luke is saying this is the way the church started and the way it grew. Because if Luke thought that common sharing of wealth should be normative for the church, how many times in Acts would he have mentioned it? A lot. Every church. Go to Corinth, and what happens in Corinth? You need to share your wealth. Go to Ephesus. What do you do? You need to share your wealth. It's mentioned in the very beginning of Acts, and then really not again. Later at the very end, there's, there's a famine that's going to happen. And so then there, there is some, some selling and, and sharing of wealth because there's a famine. Is it normative to say that wealth sharing must be done in the church? No, it's not. Now, is it a good idea? Maybe sometimes. But that's really up to what is the Holy Spirit saying in your heart? 
It's not a command, this is what has to be done. It's a knowing thing. Luke was saying, this is what the church did. Why did he mention that? Because it showed how committed the early church was to one another and to their physical as well as their spiritual needs. Now, is being committed to people's spiritual and physical needs, is that something that's normative in scripture? Yes, it is. How we actually do that, the, the mechanism by which we do that, is that mandated in Scripture? No, it is not. And there are a lot of different things that really, when you get into this and when you begin to look in the book of Acts, and when you begin to compare different church denominations, what you find is a lot of the differences in our church denominations come down to what do we consider normative and what do we consider isolated incidents, and how do we apply those? And so some churches will practice um, foot washing as an ordinance. Others don't. Some churches will um, uh, do a lot more uh, liturgy, which is really lit liturgical readings are the public reading of scripture. Some churches say we have to have the Lord's Supper every week. Others say we do it once a month. Others say we do it quarterly. Is do practicing the Lord's Supper normative for God's people? Yes, it is, absolutely. Is the frequency by which we do it normative? No, it is not. So what we need to do is we understand that the difficulty is in the knowing versus the doing. In general, just as a real practical way to understand this, I would suggest, and actually I just um, copied this from uh, Fee and Stewart in, in their book, the, the first book of how to read the Bible um, for all it's worth. So this is a whole lot smarter than me. Practices that are narrated in scripture and not explicitly commanded should not be taken as normative unless we have good reason to believe the author intended it to be normative. So kind of we, we can pass a few of these things through this grid. Okay, practices that are narrated in scripture, okay, sharing of wealth, okay, that, that's a practice that's narrated in, in scripture in the book of Acts. Is it explicitly commanded anywhere in scripture? Thou shalt divide thine wealth and give it to those who have less. No, it is not. Should we take it as normative? Well, does Luke intend that we take it as normative in the book of Acts? The answer is no, he does not. Okay, so then we should not state that this is a normative practice. The Lord's Supper, okay, it's narrated in Scripture. Is it explicitly commanded in Scripture? Yes, it is. Jesus himself commanded, this do in remembrance of me. Okay, so we take that as normative. There are other things that we, that we may not that may not be explicitly commanded, but as you read, you begin to understand that this is something that the author is saying should be normative. The problem is in the book of Acts, there are really very few things that Luke is saying should be normative. Because if we go back to the beginning, what did this mean to God's people back then? What was Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts? He lays it out in Acts chapter one. He basically, he says, in my former book, the gospel of Luke, 
I explained all the things that Jesus uh, began to, to do and to say right up until the time he was taken up into heaven. And then in the book of Acts, he lays out the spread and advance of the gospel by the Holy Spirit through select specific apostles to explain how the Jewish church became a largely Gentile church. And we need to understand that because I think that sometimes we tend to overemphasize the importance of certain apostles because they're talked about more. So if we'd say, well, who was the most important apostle? We'd say Paul, because he wrote half the New Testament and you know he, he's narrated all of the book of Acts. Peter falls off, so Peter's not as important as Paul. Is Luke trying to say that Paul is more important than Peter? No. Is he trying to say that Peter and Paul are more important than John or Andrew or Thomas or any of the other apostles? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is he is simply narrating the key events that take place to show the spread of the gospel. And because of that, I think it helps us to understand things which always bothered me when I was younger. Like in, um, in, in um, Acts, James, the brother of John, is put to death by Herod, and Peter's let out. Why? Like, did, did, and, and remember it says the church was praying for, for Peter? So if you read it, and especially like my, you know, in my, my young, you know, I was reading Acts when I was in elementary or junior high. So my first thought is, man, the church didn't pray hard enough for James. Is that a reasonable thing to think? When, I mean, sure, why not? If the church would have prayed as hard for James as they did for Peter, then James would have been released. Or maybe James did something wrong. James just really wasn't as, as important as me. That's, that's not what's being said. All that's being said is James was killed, Peter was not. See, we have to be careful that we don't overinterpret when we read Acts or really other, the, the other narrative portions of Scripture. But it's not saying that James was a lesser believer than Peter. All he's saying is James was put to death and Peter was miraculously spared. That's it. And I think we have to be really careful that we don't overanalyze and overinterpret what Acts is saying based on some preconceived ideas that, that we have. The cool thing about the book of Acts, and I think on, on a night before um, a major day in our country uh, tomorrow, it, it bears remembering at, at the, the end of the story of... Um, when Peter escapes from, from prison. And then, you know, later on, Herod gets up and he's giving a, a speech and the people say, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod does not give God glory and he's, he's eaten by worms and dies. And then the, there's a little subtext, the next line, Luke says, but the word of God continued to, to grow and, and spread. The kingdom of God which began as the, the little, the mustard seed and, and grows 
does not grow through political might. It does not grow as a result of persuasive arguments or, or strong ority or, um, orators or writers. The kingdom of God grows through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the lives of ordinary people who are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and his kingdom is worth more than anything else. And when Peter and James and John and people like that stood before the Sanhedrin and they said, look, you do what you want with us. We cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. And the, the Sanhedrin said that they said they saw that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they took note that they've been with Jesus. The kingdom of God does not spread based upon political power. It does not spread as the result of elections. It spreads because ordinary people want to be used by God and because the Holy Spirit empowers them to live in ways that they couldn't on their own. That is true in the first century in the book of Acts. That is true in 21st century America. And if the world continues, it will be true in the 24th, 28th, 34th, however many centuries. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that advances the kingdom of God. That's kind of the, the introductory message to the book of Acts, which I find very a, a great thing for us to read this week in our nation. So your homework for this next week is to read the book of Acts. Hopefully I've built up enough of excitement for you that you want to read it and you don't think, oh, that's like 28 chapters. That's a lot. It's exciting. It's a story. Read it at, at a quick pace. As I've said with each one of these readings, I would encourage you to read it all in one sitting if you can. It, it probably would not take you more than an hour or two to read the entire book of Acts. Um, listen to it on, on audio. You know, people are obsessed with audio books nowadays. You can get the Bible on audio for free. It's great. Listen to the book of Acts. I listened to the book of Luke this morning, and it took me probably about an hour, hour and a half, to, and I'm, tomorrow I'm going to listen to the book of Acts. Answer the guiding questions on page 54 of the Encounter Manual. And then if you have time this week, read Luke and Acts together. It's a two-volume story. When a, when a book of the Bible starts with, in my former book, we really should read the former book first. So Luke and Acts are actually intended to be read as one story. Uh, how to read the Bible book by book, pages 286 to 303, covers all of Luke and Acts. But at the very least for this week, read the book of Acts. Pay attention to the way the Holy Spirit is highlighted, the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as the driving force behind the spread of the gospel from being 120 scared people hiding in an upper room 
to thousands upon thousands of people spread all throughout the Roman Empire who had such an impact on that empire that within a few hundred years, it went from being the persecuted religion to being the dominant religion in the empire. How does that happen? As a result of the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God and ordinary people who really believe that God's kingdom is worth all sacrifice. One last thing I want to remind you of um, is the the spiritual formation exercises. Hopefully by now you've done the the solitude. Um, Hopefully by now you're kind of doing the solitude as a regular practice for your your scripture reading. Um, I always find it helpful to put my my phone away or walk away, try to get somewhere quiet uh, to read uh, scripture. Um, and then also the writing your own psalm. I've had some really great um, email responses from people who have said that they didn't think they were going to like doing that, and it was a huge blessing to them. Um, that was that was really an encouragement to me because as you, as you by writing your own psalm based on the, the the psalms, you're just praying God's word back to Him, and that can be a very very enriching experience. There are two other spiritual formation exercises that that I would recommend to you um, between now and the end of of our session, the end of week twelve. Uh, the first one is uh, scripture memory. Uh, we, there are two uh, recommended um, passages that we have. One is a section from Psalm 119. There are eight different, uh, or there are, there are 23, 22 sections in Psalm 119, each of them about eight verses long. Um, just memorize one of them. Every one of those sections talks about how wonderful God's word is. And remember, we talked about this from our, our reading earlier. It actually is talking about how wonderful Genesis through Deuteronomy is. Um, but just the joy of God's word. Um, or Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21, another wonderful passage. Maybe there's another passage that you want to, to memorize. We're not saying that it has to be one of these, but scripture memory is a powerful tool to hide God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. We can meditate on it. It's amazing how much when we imbibe God's word into our lives, how much it becomes a part of who we are. Our thought patterns become, we, we think scripture, we speak scripture, we encourage one another with scripture. We, when we are afraid, when, we, when we're scared, when we're nervous, whatever the case may be, it's scripture that comes to our minds. God is not going to put things in our minds if we are too lazy to bother to put them there ourselves. Scripture memory is a wonderful aid to, um, to use. It's a wonderful spiritual formation exercise that, that um, God's people have been doing for centuries. The last one is a teaching outline. Um, just sometime between now and the end of, of this course, we recommend that you sit down and write up a teaching outline and tailor it. If, if you are doing teaching regularly in a, a class, a community group, um, a, a middle school, high school, whatever the case may be, write up a teaching outline from maybe one of the books that we've gone over in, in class, um, a, a passage of scripture that you're really interested in, in studying. My recommendation, um, because what we've been focusing on here are big picture through the books of the Bible, I would maybe recommend that you do a big overview of, of a book. 
Um, you could do an outline of, of the book of Ruth. You could do an outline of um, the Matthew 13, the, the parables. You could do an outline, you could do a macroscopic um, outline of the gospel of Mark. Something that, that we've done that just kind of helps you to transition from reading God's word to maybe being in a position to teach it. It doesn't mean you have to. I am not going to collect these and grade them and then force you to teach someone or something, so don't worry about that. Um, but it's another good exercise to just take the next step in what do I do after I've read God's word, I study it, and then writing it out in such a way that then you can teach it and pass it on to others. So real quick to summarize for next week, we're going to be reading, uh, we'll read this week through the book of Acts. Next week, we'll discuss the book of Acts. And then we'll also be talking about an introduction to how do we read and interpret the New Testament epistles. I want to thank you all for coming. If anyone has any questions, comments, or anything, I'd be happy to stick around for a little bit and chat with anyone. Um, but thank you so much, and you are dismissed.